Welcome to Green Talk, a podcast by Green Farmers of Ontario. I'm Megan McKimmy. And I'm Rachel Telford. Here are your green headlines for February 15th. Over the past week, there's been a lot of celebration about Canadian agriculture. On Canadian Grains Day, uh, Grain Farmers of Ontario was involved with our partners at Cereals Canada and Alberta Wheat to spread the news about grains and grain farming at Carleton University. Um, In the cafeteria there at Carleton, they wanted to bring a little bit of the Canadian agriculture celebration to campus. And... um, help to educate their students about, you know, exactly what is in that pizza and the pastry and the pasta that they get in that cafeteria on a daily basis. And so uh, we were proud to uh, go out there and help to educate the students about some of the cutting edge technology that's used in the grain industry and introduce them to some of the people who help uh, grow that food that they're eating there in the cafeteria. And going along with that, uh, February 12th was Canadian Agriculture Day. And if you're on social media, you probably saw a little bit about this. Um, But it was a day that was started to really showcase all the amazing things happening in agriculture um, and maybe put a bit of a personal connection on it and allow consumers to see more about where their food comes from. So there's a lot of sharing um, about what people do on their farms and in agribusiness using hashtag Canadian Ag. So you can... uh, check out all those good conversations, but also part of that, um, Canadian Agriculture Day had an event in Ottawa uh, on Tuesday um, where they were came together, people from agriculture and agribusiness, um, to hear some talks and learn a bit more. Um, we were had a few Grain Farmers of Ontario staff in attendance. I unfortunately didn't make it because the, the snow kept me in Guelph. <laughs> um, but they had some good fireside chats with representatives from Costco, Uh, They had a talk about the future of proteins, which was probably a a really good topic with the New Canada Food Guide recommendations that have come out. Um, And they had a keynote speaker that was an Olympic gold medalist and just an opportunity to talk all about agriculture and share um, what a great industry we are in. It's a good time of year to talk about agriculture and and promote it because, I mean, when you're snowed inside your house, what else are you going to do but eat, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) I know we did some baking at my house, so definitely made use of those uh, Ontario and and Canadian grains for sure. (laughs) Um, The Ontario government uh, continues to announce what its plans are to meet our climate change action plan goals. And um, as you know, we don't uh, here in Ontario want to go along with the federal government's plan for reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, Ontario's new plan now um, that they have been talking about this week is that rather than an absolute cap on emissions for the entire province, uh, individual industrial facilities are going to be required to to meet uh, emission levels um, so that we can ensure that we are meeting those uh, reduction targets that we want to see to help the environment. Um, And then in addition to these proposed standards for large emitters, Ontario's recently released a proposal to increase the renewable content in gasoline to 15% as early as 2025. So that would be your ethanol and gasoline, which we all know is made from Ontario corn. So um, the fact that the Ontario government is promoting that is definitely a good thing for our farmers. And so we'll continue to watch what happens with uh, the next stages in the environmental plan from the government of Ontario. Coming up next on the podcast, we talked to Lauren Benoit, who recently completed her master's on resistant water hemp. (laughs) 
today on the podcast, we're here with Lauren Benoit, and she has recently received her master's, which is very exciting. Um, and we're just going to start out a little bit uh, about you, I guess, before we get into all that other stuff. So can you tell us a bit about your family farm? Uh, yeah, so I was um, born and raised on a grain farm just outside of Kirkton, Ontario. We just have 100 acres, and then my dad also has a custom application uh, business. So I grew up on the farm, although I didn't really become involved in agriculture until I went through the 4-H program. I showed dairy cattle for, I think, five years. Um, and then I went to the University of Guelph. I started there in 2012. I earned my Bachelor's of Science in Agriculture. Uh, I graduated in 2016. Uh, took eight months off, and then I started my Master's in 2017 with uh, Dr. Peter Sycama down at the Ridgetown campus, and just finished that a few weeks ago. And you have been involved with us here at Green Farmers of Ontario over the last uh, couple of years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to, you know, be active in our organization? So I, my first involvement with Green Farmers, I think, started in 2014 with the Grains in Action program. Um, that was really my first interaction with the GFO. Uh, after that, I started to become more involved with our family farm um, and making some decisions on that end of things. And... You know, I just really love the industry and I like what the work that GFO does and I think it's important for young people to be involved so I kind of just started to dip my toes in in little ways and then it eventually grew into a delegate role um, which I was a delegate last year and then I was on the research uh, committee as well which kind of lended itself nicely to the work I was doing with my masters. Um, so that's been my involvement so far. And how did you like being a delegate? How did you find that? I'm sure it's a little busy. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a little busy. It was a, I really enjoyed being a delegate. Um, you know, I thought it gave me some good insight into the industry. I also just met a lot of really great people who were always uh, good to talk to. I learned a lot. Um, so with re with the research committee, it's really interesting. I think for me to see um, some of the research that's going on in the province. I mean, I'm involved with the weed science side of things. Very intensely but to see what other work's going on with market utilization and uh, where our end products are ending up but also just other pest management um, or fertility or new precision ag any new research that's coming out it's really nice to see um, kind of the direction that the industry is going and I was kind of curious because you said you weren't as involved in your family farm and it's sort of you've gotten back there and more interested did you when you were younger you thought maybe you didn't want to do that or how did that all come about you know when I was little my job was largely just picking rocks. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I'm sure there's lots of fun kids that can relate to that. Yeah. I think that's where everyone starts. Um, so yeah, I actually, I worked on a dairy farm. Um, so I mean, as a kid, there just wasn't a whole lot for me to do on the grain side of things. So yeah. then I started to work on a dairy farm and that got me into the livestock. Um, and that was work that I was really more able to do at a young age through 4-H and through everything else. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to Guelph and I actually got a job in herbicide research and that's when I became really interested in the grain farming side of things. And then I wanted to know more about what we were doing at home and how we could do things differently or why we did things the way we did. And so that's where that started. It kind of started at the 4-H livestock side of things and yeah. then it changed into grain farming. That's neat. And it's interesting that you say you kind of got interested in like the herbicide side of things and the resistance and, and what was it about that that piqued your interest that said you said, hey, I want to study that? Uh, so part of it, I worked for DuPont um, out of Thorndale doing herbicide research and development and I had a really great boss, so I'll give Mike Van High a little shout out. <laughs> um, and he was always just willing to answer all my questions and just explain why we were doing things in uh, a large amount of detail. and. 
you know, because I could, because I had the opportunity to really grasp everything and understand it and understand why we were doing things, it just made me more curious. Um, and then I ended up actually sticking with herbicide research for the next four years. So your master's that you just recently completed, congratulations, by the way, that's amazing, um, was studying the control and distribution of herbicide-resistant water hemp in corn, and that was under the supervision of Dr. Peter Sikama. So why did you decide to focus on water hemp? Uh, so um, water hemp is the fourth glyphosate-resistant weed in the province. It's still very relatively new. Um, it was first confirmed in 2014 on in Lambton County, and it's since spread to, I think, six other counties, uh, six additional counties. You know, it seems to be one of the problems where it really hasn't reached the entire province yet, but it has the potential to, so it's nice to do research and get ahead of it so that when farmers do realize that they have water hemp in the fields, that we have control options already researched and prepared for them, mm-hmm. uh, so we don't have to start the research as the issue, after the issue is developed, we're trying to get ahead of it. So for farmers who might not be familiar with water hemp, what, uh, what does it look like? What should they be on the lookout for? So water hemp is very closely related to the other amaranth species, which would be redroot or green pigweed. Uh, redroot and green pigweed are both hairy, redroot very much so, and uh, green pigweed is sparsely hairy, uh, whereas water hemp is absolutely completely hairless. So that's the really the dead giveaway for what to look for. In addition to being hairless, water hemp also just tends to have longer, waxier leaves. Um, and it's also a dioecious plant, so the flower and the seed head looks a little different. So are they like a broad leaf or like a narrow skinny leaf? So it'll be a narrower leaf than you would see on red root pigweed usually. And you mentioned how it's sort of slowly spreading across the province. Um, how, is, how is that progression happening? So it's through a few different mechanisms that water hemp can spread. It's not like fleabane, it's not a wind transported seed. Uh, largely, it would be through um, equipment movement as farmers move equipment, either bringing in equipment from the states that's from a contaminated area or moving equipment from a contaminated field to a clean one, so you can move that way. Um, also through ducks or waterfowl. Birds actually prefer to eat water hemp seeds. It's not broken hmm. down in their digestive tract and then it's spread along their migratory routes. So it does have potential to move quite far. Um, and then the last way is on waterways. If you're near a river, the seed does float. Uh, water hemp, the name, it does prefer <laughs> wet areas. The seed floats and then it'll float downriver to new locations. And in the U.S., how um, how much of a problem are they finding with water hemp? It is a very large problem in the United States. So here we have resistance to four modes of action, groups two, five, nine, and 14. And in the States, in uh, actually in 2018, they confirmed the first population with resistance to six modes of action. So it develops resistance really, really quickly. Um, and it, just the control options are so limited. Do we know why it's developing resistance so quickly? So there's a few reasons. One is that it's dioecious, so you need two plants to crossbreed in order to produce the next generation. Uh, so because of that, resistance genes do move from one population to the next quite quickly. Um, and then in addition to that, it's also a high seed producer. Uh, so each plant is producing... Uh, a plant can produce up to 4.2 million seeds, although in competition it's about 300,000. That's still a lot of seeds. So that's still a lot of seeds. Yeah, it, no one no one relaxes anyone. I tell them that water <laughs> only produces 300,000 seeds. Um, so just the, num- the sheer number of seeds, it establishes in an area really quickly, and there's just a lot of potential with it crossbreeding every generation to have new mutations and have uh, resistance spread. 
And the seeds can stay uh, viable in the soil for a while as well? Yeah, so we estimate it's about three to five years that the seed would stay viable in the soil. Wow, so even if you don't actually see it, it could pop up again in a year or two? Yeah. So definitely important that you've, uh, you're getting ahead of this then and uh, done this research. So during your research that you've done on water hemp, what have you discovered is, I guess, the best option for farmers if they're looking at a pre-emergence of the weed? So uh, prior to emergence, you would want to put down, Acuron is easily the best herbicide that we have, although Lumax, Callisto plus Atrazine, or Integrity are also really great options. And what if we're looking at post-emergence? Post-emergence, if you're looking to clean up escapes, Liberty is one of the best options that we have for that. If you have a group 27 pre, we don't want to put down two group 27s in the same season because that would select for group 27 resistance plants, which is what we're really trying to stay away from. Uh, If you had a pre-emerge herbicide such as Integrity where there's no group 27 in that tank mix, you'd want to follow it with Callisto plus Atrazine, which is a stronger post. If you didn't have a pre-emerge down, Callisto plus Atrazine is the best post that we have. So if you know you have a problem, you should be using the pre-emerge products. But if you don't and you see them pop up, then you still have some options post-emergence. Yeah. And what uh, I know we should probably be scouting early too, but if, uh, what should you be looking for, I guess, throughout the season as well? So uh, early in the season, you'd want to be identifying it. That'd probably be the biggest one. It does look a lot like red root pigweed. Um, so it is a weed that has potential to get missed early on. Later in the season, uh, after you've sprayed, you should you know make note of what you've applied and then if there's any escapes and if there's any pattern to the escapes, um, then you would know. That could lead you to believe that it's a resistant population. So for example, um, you know if it's in a strip right where the combine would have driven, you could assume that the year before there was a single plant and then it was distributed the next year via the combine. So it's important to you know later in the season come back and scout to find any escapes. Is there any um, research that indicates what effect water hemp has on yields if it's uh, a problem in your fields? So uh, from our research, we've had locations where the yield reduction has been up to 50 to 60% uh, with an uncontrolled water hemp population. And with all of our research, we do apply glyphosate over the top of everything. So every susceptible plant is controlled. Really the only weed we have that's contributing to that yield loss is water hemp. In the States, the highest citation is 74% yield loss from water hemp competition. So it's a pretty significant uh, problem if if you have it in your field. Yeah, so if left uncontrolled, it's incredibly competitive. It establishes quickly and it's like high population. It will rob you of a lot of yield. So now that it's um, resistant, is it just going to continue to be an even even worse problem? Like, is, is it a hopeless situation? Or, do, you know, or hopefully don't scare too many people. I like to think it's not entirely hopeless. It is a manageable problem. I mean, so the seed stays viable to three to five years. So we like to think we're actually doing some research on that right now. Um, if you can control it for three to five years with near-perfect control, you should be able to get the um, soil seed bank down to, you know, hopefully nothing but at least a controllable uh, population. So it is manageable. That being said, you do actually need to manage it. You can't just ignore the problem and hope it goes away. So I know we focus a lot on like no-till program programs and stuff like that, but does tillage have an impact on whether or not water hemp will continue in your field? Tillage would have an impact on germination in the spring. The seed can't germinate from a huge depth. It's 
one to two inches in the soil, it will still germinate. Anything deeper than that, you likely wouldn't get germination. Uh, that being said, water hemp does emerge the entire season. So tillage early in the spring would control that or hold back that first flush. It won't do anything for anything that was going to come up after that. We've heard a bit about the, some new technology that's like the seed destructors. Um, would that be something that would benefit if, if you had a massive water hemp population in your field? Or is that technology that wouldn't really work on this type of seed? So I think they have, I don't know if they have water hemp data, but I know they have red root pigweed data for the seed destructor. And I think it provides upwards of 90% control of seed that goes through it. I think the challenge with the seed destructors is that the seed, you need it to go through the machine. So anything that's, you know, already dropped before harvest is not going to be caught in the seed destructor. And during your, your master's, you studied under Dr. Peter Sikama. What was that like working with him? I really liked working with Peter. One of the things I like the most about working with Peter is that uh, he's very farmer focused. So everything Mm -hmm. about my project, it was, you know, can we turn this around? Does it benefit a farmer? Will this actually be applied on farm? Why are we doing this? So we never really lost sight of like why we were doing the research and you almost always have our, the consumer of the information we produce is farmers and we always keep them in mind. And it was really nice to just have you know, Peter and I be on the same wavelength for that. Do you know, um, now that you're done your master's, if there's any, I guess, uh, next steps or other people looking at uh, glyphosate-resistant water hemp? Or... Uh, yeah, so we just brought on a, or Peter just brought on a new master's student to take over some of the work that uh, I didn't quite get finished. Uh, Christian Williams, he is his name. He just started in January. So he'll be taking over some of our the work we're doing on two-pass programs. Um, and he'll be taking over the survey work as well. So we've actually recently done an article in the Ontario Grain Farmer about the need for more students to pursue masters and further research in agriculture. Uh, we focused on that one on soil science, but obviously other areas of agriculture need people. Do you, did you find that it was difficult to, to find somebody to take on your work, or is, is Peter Sikama struggling to find more people to participate in his program? <laughs> so I was pretty involved with the OEC Weeds team in undergrad, uh, which is a source where a lot of people uh, would go into a weed science master's program because of the weeds team. Um, and also just through working in field research, I was I knew what to expect when a master's with a master's program. So do you think other people don't have that same sort of background knowledge that would gear them towards it? So I think a lot of people think that if you're doing a master's, you're going to have to go into a research-oriented career. Hmm. Um, and that's really not the case. Um, I just so happen to be doing that. But there's a lot of people, you, you know, having a master's sets you up for success in a lot of different areas. It doesn't mean you have to go into research. You can go into agronomy, you can go into policy, you can go on and do a lot of different things. And I think some people think that just because you're doing a master's, you're going to go into research and that's not the case. Um, I also think a master's, it's not an extension of undergrad. It's not like it's two more years of undergrad. It's a very different learning environment. And I don't think everyone really understands what that looks like. So for me, it's, um, whereas in undergrad you're taking four to five courses at a time and juggling all of that in grad school, you might be taking one or two courses at a time and then working on the same project for two years. So you always have, you're always driving towards one goal. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the end of a master's, you have like a very solid piece of work that you completed. Whereas at the end of undergrad, you get a degree, which is also a very, (laughs) which is also a very, um, it's a lot of work, but I guess it's different. It's just a different type of work. Um, for me, one of the things that I really, really enjoyed about grad school is being able to do work uh, and then go talk to farmers, either as a delegate or uh, 
you know, at any of the meetings and have them understand what I was doing and have them like appreciate the value of what we were doing. I was actually going to ask you a bit about um, taking a master's program. If I guess if you're talking to people that are in their undergrad right now, um, what would be some advice if someone's interested in in getting into a master's? So I would say, you know, pick a project that you really like and pick a project you feel passionate about and pick an advisor who you also uh, click really well with. And I guess uh, you had mentioned that you were out and you've got to talk to a lot of farmers. What kind of presentations and sort of what was that side of things that you did? Uh, so in my fir- after my first year of research in that summer, we did a the GFO ran a research tour and we brought farmers out right out to the field, which was actually, I thought, really valuable. It was really nice just to have them see you know, what we were doing and just see how it all works. Um, and I think they gained an appreciation for some of the research work that we do, which was really nice. So that was probably the most hands-on um, learning opportunity that we had. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, uh, you know, the Southwest Ag Conference will present our research there at a district meeting I had the opportunity to present last year. Lots of seconds to get to talk to people. That's pretty neat. And you're um, fairly active on Twitter. And so one of the things that we noticed when you uh, sort of celebrated and announced that, yes, I did it, I got my master's, is that you'd actually, like, hadn't done very well in some of, like, your science oh, classes. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> or you failed chemistry yeah. or something like that. So, so I actually, I failed chemistry twice. Um, I, so in undergrad, you have to take two chemistries. I failed each of them once. So I took... Four chemistry courses in undergrad, which was um, a lot. Yeah, I am not a classroom learner at all. Like, I do not pay attention in lecture. I probably, well, I can say this now because I graduated (laughs) and I have all my degrees. But, like, I just, I don't mesh with classroom. I'm so much more a hands-on, like, hands-on learning, you know, learning through my peers rather than, you know, sit down, read a book, write a paper. So in that way, grad school actually lent itself very nicely to the way I learned. But yeah, in the first few years of undergrad, like it was just, I'm sure there's people out there who really love (laughs) chemistry. I'm not one of them. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the first few years, it was just a learning curve on how to actually, you know, sit down and make myself learn things that I really wasn't particularly enjoying. So I didn't like chemistry, but I really loved the people I went to school with. And I really loved my program. Yeah. So I got through it, but so there was a speed bump. You didn't find that those chemistry classes, based on the fact that you're looking at herbicide resistance and a lot of chemistries involved in herbicide, you know, development, <laughs> you didn't find that you needed that background? So actually, it's, yeah, that's a little funny. I'm looking back, it's funny that I went through <laughs> a grad program that does have a chemistry component when clearly it was not a strong point um, early on in my academic career. So I found when I learn about chemistry in a way that it's actually applied, like with herbicides and this is how it works in a plant, this is, you know, why it kills this plant, but it doesn't do anything to the corn plant right next to it. You know, that stuff I understand and that's stuff I really care to learn about. Yeah, it's more of an, uh, it gives you a, a, I don't know, a reason that you're learning. Yeah, so I, I understood it better because I could see it being applied in the field, whereas with a lot of the first year cat, it was... (laughs) theoretical book work. That <laughs> Equations <I> just, <laughs> and numbers. And <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite sure why I needed to know it. Um, so yeah, I did have to relearn a little bit of chemistry in grad school, but it was all applied stuff. So that was... So I think that's interesting. Your story, I, I think, might maybe inspire some other people that are in that same position, like sitting in the classroom right now being like, oh my gosh, why am I learning this? <laughs> it's like, there is an end. There, there is, is a reason. Yeah. Yes, and you can do it. And you just have to do it. And then as soon as you're done, you don't have to think about it again. <laughs> Unless, of course, you choose to. Yeah. Did, but. 
So we also saw on Twitter that you um, are going to Australia very soon. So we're lucky that we grabbed you for the podcast now. Can you tell us uh, what you're doing out there? Yeah, so I got a job with uh, BSF Australia to work as a field biologist uh, down in Tamworth. So I'll be about four four hours north of Sydney um, and working in herbicide development. So sort of the same thing I've been doing here, just in a different country. So we'll do research and development on either new products or new ways to use older products but yeah I worked as I worked for BSF in my undergrad and then that connection kind of led me to this opportunity which was really cool uh I actually asked my I asked the person who's going to be my boss um I start at early May yeah. about some of the crops that I'll be working with and he listed everything from corn soybeans wheat barley mung bean <laughs> sap flower sunflower and I'm like I don't know so it's gonna be a learning curve um but I'm really excited and they actually have a lot of resistance issues down there so I'll get to see that perspective as well. So how long are you planning to stay in Australia? So I have a a six-month contract with BSF right now so I'll start early May and I'll go until um, early November. Uh, They actually I didn't learn this until this year but they farm in the winter Mm. uh, which is our summer so our growing seasons actually line up because for them their summers are too hot and dry they don't have enough moisture to grow anything or They'll dry land farm, but they don't have enough moisture. It's not their primary growing season. So our primary growing seasons are actually at the same time. Well, that'd be kind of neat. So yeah. we can actually follow <laughs> along with you at the same time. Yeah. But uh, So is their weather, I guess, then over their winter sort of moderate? Definitely probably not the snow and cold and minus 30 yeah. that we've got yeah. here in Canada, that's for sure. But So I don't know yet because I haven't quite been. But from what I understand, you know, to them, a cold day would be 10 to 15 degrees. Hmm. Um, that sounds nice right now. <laughs> yeah. Which is not at all what the weather's like outside right now. But Yeah. What's one thing you're really excited, I guess, about going to another country and doing this uh, contract? <laughs> it might there's be a challenging so much, yeah, question. Yeah, there's so many, so many things I'm excited about. You know, for like from a career perspective, yeah. it's very cool to, like for me, it'll be cool to see just other crops and how different countries do things. Mm-hmm. And just see how one of the things that I'm actually really interested in because I'm a herbicide resistance <laughs> grad student. Um, so in Canada, we have that winter period where we don't have weeds growing. Uh, in Australia, they don't have that. So their resistance cycle happens a little faster just because they don't mm-hmm. have they have that extra six months of the year where nothing's happening yeah. with us here. And they still have plants germinating and growing and developing resistance. So I'm really excited to see how herbicide programs work. Um, in places where they need to have control all year round and not just in the summer the way we do. Hmm. Um, It'll be a really neat opportunity to see just like a variety of different crops and different climate and how all of that works. They're also, their farms tend to be a little bit larger scale than what I'm used to here in Ontario, so that'll be exciting. And then just for me personally, I'm moving halfway across the world and I don't know anyone there, so. (laughs) That'll be neat. So... We talked a bit about how you've, in the last couple of years, taken on a more active role in your family farm. So what's the plan for them with, with you now going to Australia? So right now we're just kind of putting it on hold for a year. We are, we're only 100 acres, so it is very manageable. Um, without me, my dad farmed pretty much by himself before I was around, so I don't think he'll have too much of an issue at all, <laughs> I believe. Um, so yeah, we're kind of just putting it on hold for a year, and then we'll see what, what happens when I come back. We'll make a new plan reevaluate 
Maybe be a delegate again? Maybe be a delegate again. <laughs> yeah, we should mention that. So you were a delegate last year, but then this year, obviously, was going to Australia. Um, you couldn't be a delegate because you're not going to be around. So <laughs> Yeah, so last year I was a delegate for the first year, and when I did sign up for that, I intended to be a delegate for a little bit longer. Um, and then this year, just because I'm not going to be around all summer, it didn't make sense for me to run as a delegate again. So I gave the opportunity to someone else who was going to be in the country. <laughs> Great. And if people, we've talked about how we've seen some of your posts on Twitter. If other farmers or grad students or undergrads want to follow you and your adventures in Australia, how can they find you on Twitter? So uh, my Twitter handle is at Lauren Delise, which is Lauren spelled the way you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then Delise is D-A-L-Y-C-E. Uh, that's just my middle name. So yeah, so that's where you can find me if you like tweets about water hemp and ice cream. And <laughs> Who doesn't like tweets about water hemp and ice cream? That sounds so, an exciting yeah. mix. Those are pretty much the two themes on my Twitter page and hopefully Australia soon. So. And we'll, we'll be jealous about how warm it is out there when we're yes, cold. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll rub it in too much. <laughs> well, thank you, Lauren, for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, it was really interesting learning about your project and uh, all the exciting things you have going on. Right. Well, thank you. Coming up next on the podcast, we talk to our CEO, Barry Semp. We're joined on the podcast now by Barry Semp, our CEO at Grain Farmers of Ontario. And you just came from a Grain Industry Advisory Committee. Can you tell us a bit more about what's happening there? Sure. Well, the Grain Industry Advisory Committee, or GIAC, is a, uh, an industry committee meeting that's required through regulation from Farm Products Marketing Commission and uh, and part of the regulation is uh, we hold one meeting with the industry per year. And so we thought um, as a follow-through from the delegates' policy discussion that we had on the future of the industry, future of farming, uh, we entitled it uh, uh, Farming 2029. Um, we thought this would be a good topic to follow through with from that discussion that we had in December with delegates to a broader discussion with the industry. So what, you know, the SWOT analysis, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. We went through similar process that we did then, uh, but with, you know, the ethanol industry, with grain uh, companies, with uh, uh, ingredient, and, um, and the regulators talking about... Um, you know, where do we see the industry in 10 years and what needs to change, whether it's from a regulatory perspective or a production perspective, what have you, what needs to change to ensure that we are competitive, uh, knowing what the market is and filling that market. So I think it was a real positive discussion that occurred. What I guess were some of the key things that made you think that the outlook for 10 years from now is, is a positive one? Well, I think uh, farmers are quick from a farming perspective, of course, is where I'm going to start with at least, is farmers are quick to take on technology. Um, they're quick to take on new ways of doing things, whether it's uh, new crops, uh, new traits within those uh, commodities represent or what have you. So farmers are very... Uh, open and innovative as far as uh, trying new things and uh, technology is going to be a big part of that um, of that uh, future uh, some of the issues that you know we've heard about already and is going to get you're going to even hear more of those uh, those types of issues but one of them is blockchain and we had a you know the big sale of corn by actually one of our board members occur uh, through the uh, December period, the first time that um, sale of, of corn was made through uh, the blockchain process. 
So, you know, it's going to, uh, you know, I think the overall tone of the, of the meeting today, as it was with delegates, is that we've seen a lot of change in the last 10 years, and we're going to see maybe even more significant change or at least accelerated change in the next 10 years. And then how do we ready ourselves as, uh, as farmers and for the industry for those, uh, for those changes? And um, I think it's good to just have these types of discussions, even the processors and some of the others, grain companies, uh, grain, you know, representing grain companies can go back and think about it, think about what we discussed today and then look towards the future as far as their strategic plan and some of what they heard and discussed today, how that fits and might influence their plan in the future. And um, our new board of directors has gone into effect just earlier this week, as well as our executive. Can you tell us about uh, what new changes we have? Sure, we've had two uh, new board members come on, Emery and uh, and Josh, and uh, we welcome them uh, to the uh, to the new uh, board of directors meeting. Um, the, uh, every year in the February uh, board me- meeting, the uh, executive is uh, elected or re-elected. Uh, Marcus, of course, stays on as uh, chair. Uh, Brandon Burney as the uh, vice chair, along with uh, Mark Houston as the other vice chair. And we had Jeff Harrison uh, elected as the new executive member to uh, to the board of directors. So uh, it's a time for uh, for those elections to take place again with all the committees that delegates uh, some of those of which delegates will be involved in at the uh, district annual meetings in January delegates were asked to uh, submit their names to committees that uh, that are uh, that are part of uh, the organization to uh, show their interest in those so now that the board committees have been um, have been organized yesterday now they'll be reaching out to uh, that those that were interested in uh, to fill those spots. So uh, it's always a busy February board meeting from a couple of different perspectives. All right, well, thank you, Barry, for your update from the CEO today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests, Lauren Benoit and Barry Senth. And thanks to our producer, Mark Carter. Help us grow our Grain Talk podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes and Google Play. And remember, five-star reviews on iTunes help us reach more people.